Okay. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our Lutheran Foundations class. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer, but before we get into that, let's begin with an invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. In the 2017 edition of the uh, Small Catechism, we're looking at page well, page 19 is where the Lord's Prayer starts. And since it's been a few weeks, I thought we'd do just a very quick review. Then we'll jump into the fifth petition where we left off. And um, God willing, we'll get through the Lord's Prayer and maybe even a little way into uh, a little ways into baptism here. So on page 19 with the Lord's Prayer, you recall the context, uh, the biblical context of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, Stand facing exactly northeast with your arms at 43 and 27 degree angles. Sit lotus style. Think about absolutely nothing for 53 minutes. Then go into, no. So, so there was no technique. When you pray, pray in this way. And in such a Jesus way, he gives them, he gives them the prayer. He actually puts, as it were, his words right on their lips. And says, here you go, pray this. And it's, it's short, it's succinct, succinct, easy for you to say, but also um, profoundly beautiful. And we've, we've already seen just all the different ways in which it gets very, very deep and ties in with the entire psalmody and the entire uh, prayer that, that in some ways <clears throat> is the scriptures. So we're trying as hard as we can to keep simple and to keep straightforward and to keep foundational here. As we look at the Lord's Prayer, again, just to be very basic about it, um, there are seven petitions with an introduction and a conclusion. So the introduction, Our Father who art in heaven. Of course, this um, baptismal, God becomes our Father in a new, profound, and everlasting way through baptism, where He marks us with His name. You can think of it that way if you like, that you have a, a last, last name attached after your last name. Your, your first name tells us who you are as an individual. Your last name tells us your family connection, who you are as an individual within that family unit. And, and then your, uh, your last, last name ties you into the, the heavenly family, the eternal family. That's the family of God that can't be broken by death, and that's why it's so important to be part of this eternal family. Our earthly families can be broken by death. The eternal family, not. We can only be parted and that for a moment. So, Our Father, who art in heaven, is the intro. First petition, hallowed be thy name. We acknowledge, of course, that God's name is holy in, in itself, but we're asking that God would do what we cannot on our own do, and that is keep his name holy in our midst. And God's name is kept holy in these two ways. When we, uh, the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, so we might summarize that as faith. And when we, as, as God's children, lead holy lives according to it, we might describe that as life, so faith and life. And we recognize that we can't lead a, a godly faith, have a godly and right faith and lead a godly and right life apart from God's supernatural blessing. And so we're praying in this petition, hallowed be thy name, that 
he would do that. His name, his identity, his reputation, you can see how those things then tie into what it is we confess, believe and confess about him and how we live that out in our daily lives. Um, we are representatives of, of him and of his name because we are bearers of his name. Again, in holy baptism. Second petition, thy kingdom come. And here we are praying, again, I think, I think it's easiest to think of kingdom in terms of reign. And you can think of the, we're praying God's reign would come. Now, it's going to come even without our prayers, but we're praying that it may come among us also. It's, I think it's very helpful to think in terms of like, well, well, what's the reign in opposition to God's reign? You know, what's the kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom? And that's the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the unholy spirit. So when we pray, let your kingdom come, or thy kingdom come, thy reign come, we're praying that God would send his Holy Spirit, that his Holy Spirit would oust the unholy spirit and bring his kingdom here on earth so that we can uh, believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. Okay, the third petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Scary petition. So we're saying not my will be done, but thy will be done. It's only scary to our old Adam. The new man within us delights in this prayer. And again, it's helpful to think in terms of, well, why wouldn't God's will be done? What's in opposition to God's will? And there we have the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. So, you know. The devil, of course, his great trick in the West is trying to convince us all that he doesn't exist. That way he can go about his business while we're, you know, unaware that it's he. The world, of course, when you turn on CNN or Fox News or whatever it is. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's just the sum total of wickedness of, of humanity. It's, you know, you... It's just the whole thing. You can't escape from the wickedness of the world. The whole world's bent against God and God's ways. And then our own sinful nature, we find out that the evil isn't just out there. It isn't just located in the devil. It isn't just located in the world. It's located in, in me as well. And so in that respect, I am my own worst enemy. And so when we pray God's will be done, we're praying that God would break and hinder every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and... Our sinful nature, that's, way that's, that's the sense in which we're praying against ourselves. Now, as I mentioned, these first three petitions form this beautiful set um, where our minds are taken off of our own immediate needs. You know, so often I think when, when we all sit down to pray ex corde from the heart, spontaneously, well, first of all, it ends up devolving into kind of a rote thing. You have your own formulaic way of praying. But in the third place, it tends to just be sort of a laundry list of the things I need. <laughs> you know? um, the Lord's Prayer is so refreshing in that the first thing it does, it's, it's profoundly healthy, maybe not, maybe not healthy to our egotism, but profoundly healthy to us, us as human beings, and that is it reorients us. God is the center of the universe in all things. His name, His kingdom, His will. Those are the things. And when we've, when we've let those things be at the center and find ourselves in periphery to that, it's actually profoundly healing and helpful and restorative. It also contextualizes the problems that we're going through. You know, if I'm the center of the universe, my problems are the biggest problems there are. And they're frankly God-sized problems because there I am at the center of the universe sitting in God's seat as if I were God. All my problems are God-sized problems and I'm not God. So this reorientation that the Lord's Prayer can give us is just so beautiful and helpful in and of itself that 
the first petitions we pray um, have to do with God and God's things and acknowledging Him as the center and then us on the periphery. Very, very helpful. Okay, of course it's not wrong to pray for those things that we need. It's not wrong to, to pray for others. That's intercessory prayer where we intercede for others. We can intercede for fellow believers in Christ. We can intercede for non-believers. That's the sense in which the Bible tells us we are a priesthood, a priestly class by way of baptism, so that we pray intercessory prayers on behalf of those who won't pray, the unbelievers. Okay? We can pray for others, but we can certainly also pray for ourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. And I'm reminded of yet another facet. You can notice how all throughout this, this prayer, it's, is it singular or plural? Is it my Father who art in heaven? Our Father. Is it give me this, wait, I can't even say it, I don't think. Give me, <laughs> give me this day my daily bread? No. Give us this day our, there's this beautiful, I mean, I don't know where it originated, but this, it's just true. You, you can never pray the Lord's Prayer alone. It's always a collective corporate family prayer. You're never praying it alone. Our Father who art in heaven. And you know, sometimes I'll get people who, you know, they're in kind of a, they're in a spiritual condition where they've, they've been attacked and buffeted by Satan. And, um, you know, so, so much so that you lose, you kind of lose sight and despair. You get tunnel vision. And they've said to me, like, Pastor, I've, I've never even so much as prayed for someone else in my life. It's like, well, wait a minute. Have you prayed the Lord's Prayer with us on Sunday morning? Yes, I have. Then you've prayed for other people. Because you're praying, our Father, and give us this day our daily bread. And that's the, that's the whole family. And so, yeah, we immediately pray for ourselves and others. It's beautiful. Also, there's no individualism here. I mean, again, it's a corporate, familial prayer. And that in and of itself is writing. Because we live in a far too atomized and individualistic world. And that's, that's bad for us. It's very bad for us. Okay, so the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. And we talked about that. Now, the key to the fourth petition is um, this first paragraph. What does this mean, give us this day our daily bread? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this. So at the heart of give us this day our daily bread is a petition that God would grant revelation to us reveal to us the true nature of the world. When he does so, we can see that he provides everything that everyone has, and it is all his good and gracious gift. The whole world is transformed in the sense that um, we can see that God's grace extends even to those who hate him, even to, even to all evil people. God's grace extends to them, and sometimes extends to them very lavishly, that can even be offensive to us, you know. Why do the, why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> why, do the, why do the good suffer? Um, it can even be offensive to us. And, and there's time and place for that lament. I think Psalm 73 is a lament and meditation in just that regard. But once we can kind of get over our hang-up on that and get, up, get over our hang-up on the supposed injustice of God, Remember, all the, all the charges that our own hearts make and that other people make against God on the basis of his injustice, they may well be valid 
in this limited sense. We're only looking at half the equation. Okay, <laughs> God, the, the scales aren't done being balanced until God speaks his final word. So if you just take the data of this life alone, you might say, hey, that's, that's not just, that's not fair. But that would be a mistake. This life alone isn't the entire, isn't the entire picture. Let, let the, uh, well, I don't think the Bible says the fat lady sings. <laughs> but let the, let the final trumpet blow and let the archangel shout and then see if there's room to charge God of injustice. Okay, that's the real tell. And of course there won't be. There won't be. I, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about the truth is that it's profoundly simple, humble, what would we say? Not naked. It is naked, but what would we say? We would say... Um, Transparent, transparent. So much so that, that the, the sad souls that choose to go to hell, choose to reject the redemption in Christ Jesus, deem themselves unworthy of the eternal life of which Christ has bought and paid for and that God very much wants them to have, that in, that in hell they will have no choice but to acknowledge that God treated them in a, in a completely fair way. And not only in a completely fair way, but in a completely gracious way that he transcended their own sense of rightness and fairness. Um, because in their own sense of right, rightness and fairness, you know, are they going to feed a bunch of people who are their sworn enemies? <laughs> and who live to subvert them and their... No. And yet God has done that very thing to them. So there's going to be not a, si not a single accusation that can even be made against God. Not only will he show himself to be completely just and fair, but utterly and profoundly merciful to all people. So this is a very, very profound petition. That's a foundations class, so I hate to get into this, but there's different ways to think about the structure of the Lord's Prayer. And one of the interesting ways to think of it is a chiasm, which is the, the, the Greek letter chi, it's the X. Um, sometimes in the church art, you'll see a, you'll say, Pastor, what's that XP in the church art? What's that XP? And it's a, it's a remnant for when we were advertising for windows. <laughs> no, it's a chi. Uh, the Greek letter that uh, um, begins the name of Christ, and Rho, that second letter in his name. So uh, the Greek letter R looks kind of like a P. And so that Chi Rho is like the first part of Christos, and so it's short for Christ. And of course, play on the, on the Chi, it gets turned into a cross, and play on the Rho, the P, it sometimes um, can start to look like a shepherd's crook, that kind of thing. So, um, but anyway, a chiastic structure is a structure that kind of looks like an X. And if you do that to the Lord's Prayer, there's many biblical texts where if you do this, you can really see that the way the author wrote it in terms of literature really works to emphasize the middle. Okay? And if you do that with the Lord's Prayer, the middle petition is the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. We reflected more deeply last week on how daily bread can even be Jesus because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Okay, So if we're going to see it chiastically, we want to see Jesus at the center in all of his provision. But it's quite the profound petition because we realize just how gracious God is. Our entire perception of the world shifts, and we see that while there is curse on account of sin, while there is punishment, while there is temporal forms of justice, 
um, imperfect as they may be, while there are all of these things, shining through is the goodness and graciousness of God. You know, every day you can wake up and see the sunrise and say, that's God's blessing upon us. You can, see, you can see rain falling and crops growing and say, that's God's blessing upon us. You can have a day of where there's not a neighboring country trying to assault you and take everything you have. You can say, that's God's blessing upon us. So the fourth petition covers a great deal. Okay, fifth petition. That takes us into the new material. Before we go into the new material, any questions or thoughts or anything I um, confused you on in, in this brief recap as we run up to the new new petitions. All right. On to the fifth petition then, which is page 21 in your 2017 catechism. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What I always find strange and wonderful about this petition is that it comes so late in the Lord's Prayer. Because wouldn't you think, if you were sitting down with like, you know, you've got your little Lutheran outfit on, whatever that looks like, you've got all your little Lutheran books stacked up around you, and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to write the world's greatest prayer. How does it begin? It begins the way our divine service begins, with a confession of sins. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that that's not how Jesus does it. Very fascinating. I mean, it's there. It's very important. It's one of the, it's one of the seven petitions, but it's not right off the bat. It's almost as if there are these other things that are more foundational, more imminent, more important. We're not going to pit one petition against another as if this one's you know, important and this one isn't or something like that. But it is interesting that the Lord chooses to put it fifth. It's kind of back there a ways. And it's connected to this daily bread. You know, give us, the, give us this day our daily bread and... Okay, so it comes next. It's, it's connected. It's not disconnected from this idea. It seems rather to flow from it. Remember, if daily bread is, as Luther says, all things needed to support this body and life, not only bodily needs, but also familial needs, good rulers, good government, good weather, all the rest, then as we're living in this, in this world that God is sustaining, even in the midst of curse, even in the midst of the evil of the devil and the world and our own sinful nature, you know, we're going to fall prey to sin, and then that sin has to be addressed. I think that's the logic and the ordering here. But I commend it to you. It's fascinating. Okay, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. All right, well, what's a trespass? We should maybe start there. What's a trespass? You've seen the sign that says, no trespassing. Violators will be shot. Yeah, no trespassing. So to trespass is to, um, you, you think of another word, transgress, transgressions. What does it mean to transgress? To go beyond a set bound? Very similar to trespass, isn't it? To go, on, to go beyond where you're allowed to go. So trespass, very similar to transgress. And of course, all of this very similar to um, the, the ideas of sin and the idea of debt. In fact, if you go to the original language, this trespasses here is ophilomata, I think, and it's, um, it's debts would be a more literal. And sometimes you even get that in the older version. Some of you might have even grown up learning that, you know, forgive us our debts, you know. 
Okay, so that's a, that's a trespass. A trespass is a sin. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins. And that's exactly what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is that he would not look at our sins. Or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. See how that connects with the the fourth petition and everything being gift. We can't say that it's a gift, but then we deserve it. If we deserve it, it's not a gift, but a payment, you know, an allowance. <laughs> so if, since it is gift, we can't say that we deserve it. So we are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. <clears throat> but we ask that he would give them all to us by grace. And here we see, obviously, the biblical meaning of grace that is apart from any merit or worthiness within us, apart from any thoughts, words, or deeds on our part, simply given as a free gift, given all to us by grace. For we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. And while, that's, while we wish that that wasn't the case, isn't it comforting? That in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that He gives us to pray and pray on a daily basis, forgive us our sins. What does that mean? I mean, if you think about that for two minutes, what does that mean? It means the Lord knows that we are going to daily sin. It means that He knows we're going to daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. Now that's profoundly comforting because the devil, the devil tries to get us to think this. That God is, that, that Jesus especially, is shocked and appalled that we have fallen into sin yet again that he just cannot stomach it, he is absolutely fed up, and if, if he's not going to get rid of you today, it's probably going to be tomorrow. It's like the Dread Pirate Roberts. I'll most likely kill you. I don't know why I have the Princess Bride on my, <laughs> on my mind today. I have, not, uh, I have not seen that movie in a long time. No. Most likely kill you in the morning. That, but that's, but that's, how, that's how Satan gets us to see Jesus. And to see our relationship with God, you know, he uses, we sin and the, and the conscience becomes defiled. We start feeling like unworthy to be Christian. And he says, that's right, you are. You know, and Jesus thinks so too. He's quite shocked and appalled by how naughty you've been. Uh, you're up to your same old stuff. He's getting sick of it. And then, you know, he'll start to use scripture against you too. Like, you've grieved the Holy Spirit and you've sent him away from you. You're done. You know, and that's the, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's, that's where we get into um, the next petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation. I mean, we often think, we often think that Satan's goal is, um, hey, you know, break one of God's rules. Um, just, you know, commit a naughty, and like that's the end of the game. No, that's the beginning of the game. If he can get you to do that, now you've anteed. Now, you're getting, now you get to play a hand of poker with him. Because he gets to hold that against you. And he gets to play that up in such a way that he can try to get you to be self-righteous and defiant and maybe even say, you know what, it's not a sin. There. Maybe it should be celebrated. <laughs> um, or, or, as we've been talking about, you know, woe is me. The Lord's going to fire me any day. I'm not really a Christian. 
you know, it's facade, it's fake. Okay, so this is the devil's, the two main ways the devil tries to bend our sin. But he's got to get us to sin in the first place. That's just the beginning. And then he tries to bend us towards self-righteousness and a callous heart towards our sins or towards despair and this, this constant idea that like, boy, you're in the kingdom, but you're absolute dead last and least and it's going to be miserable and you're going to be a janitor in heaven, so I'm not even sure why you try. You know. What's that? Well, I know, that, that's what we have to comfort ourselves and say that, but he's, I mean, you know, the devil, he's always like, yeah, you'll be in heaven, but it's going to be miserable, you know. Okay, so forgive us our trespasses. You can see how, I mean, just look at the mastery of, of Jesus, how he, how he lines this up, just so unassumingly. They seem completely disconnected, but as soon as you start thinking more deeply about daily bread, you start thinking, and, and about the nature of grace and the nature of creation, you start thinking more deeply about sin. And there, lo and behold, forgive us our trespasses. What about the sins of others as we forgive those? And what's the danger? Why do we need forgiveness and why do we need to forgive others? Lead us not into temptation because the devil's lurking there to use the sins we've committed against us and then the sins that other people have committed against us. That's a, that's a whole other attack. I've been talking very personally about, you know, when we commit sins. Um, when sins are committed by others, the devil has a whole different set of ways that he uses that, um, both against the one who has sinned against us. You know, for them, it's more the despair, self-righteousness thing. But for us, it's like the... I mean, again, the two poles are like unrighteous indignation, masquerading as righteous indignation. Uh, that's, that's maybe one extreme the irrational anger that Jesus condemns in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount um, when others sin against us. But what's the other one? I, the victim. I, the victim. There's Jesus on the cross, the, true, the one true and innocent victim, but I'm right there next to him. I don't want to brag or anything, but that's, yeah. People have persecuted me. Most of what I do isn't my fault because people have driven me to it, you see. So, um, so Satan has his ways of using those who sin against us to create great havoc in our hearts and in our souls and really mangle and mess us up. And it's so insidious and he's so patient that this can take long forms until, you know, you just, wa you just wake up one day and you don't even realize that you're a a self-righteous prig, <laughs> or you don't even realize that, that you're this, uh, you know, swirling vortex of woe is me-ism, you know, and it's just, uh, it's, the, it's the danger here. So, all right, so this is serious business. We pray that God would um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Notice the vertical dimension, that God would forgive us, and that that would flow out as we forgive others. It's not a conditional here. It's not that, it's not like God's up there going like, okay, okay, well you forgave that guy. I'll rate you, I'll rate you like a C on how you forgave that guy. So I'm going to forgive you as a C, you know. You're going to get, you're going to get half the temporal punishment due. No, no, that's not what this petition means, okay. Um, remember what, uh, remember when, when Peter, and this is really pretty bold, Peter says, um, should, I, should I forgive my brother 
up to seven times. Remember that? Up to seven times. And that's, why is that bold? Because it starts to get into that thing of like, maybe my forgiveness isn't, is being abusive to me, right? And maybe that's kind of, but maybe it's even being wrong for him that I would forget, just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving, right? So seven is pretty bold. Seven is pretty radical. But then you remember what Jesus says. Not seven, but 70 times seven. So if Jesus would have us who are mere mortals, A, B, very, very sinful, and C, complete egotists, all of us, and he would say, hey, I want, I, I want you guys to forgive everything, then how on earth is he? <laughs> he forgives everything. He's not going to require more of us than he requires of himself, for crying out loud. So there's beauty and comfort in this. There's beauty and comfort in this, that, that God wants us to forgive others precisely because he so freely forgives us. He's not astonished by our sins, nor should we be astonished when other people sin against us. Isn't that a strange thing? We can never help but be, a, be surprised by it. Well, I can't believe he said that. Well, why can't you believe he said that? I mean, A, you deserve worse, and B, uh, I mean, <laughs> and B, he's a sinner. Was that a surprise to you? You know. So this is, this is, again, such a grounding and helpful petition. We ask, we ask vertically that God would not deny our prayer because of our sins, but would hear us, again, as our, as our gracious Father who forgives us for the sake of Jesus. Okay. And, then, and then we, um, on the basis of his forgiveness flowing to us, we pray and pledge ourselves, you know, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And what a great opportunity if you're, having, if you're struggling to forgive someone or struggling to do the right thing or struggling to let it go. What a great opportunity to pause in the Lord's Prayer right there and say, and help me forgive. I know I haven't forgiven this person as you've forgiven me. Help me. I know I can't forget as you've forgotten my sins. But help me love this person. Um, or or uh, in some circumstances... You know, the sin committed against you is such that you have to have space. You have to have a boundary. There's no more contact or communication there. Then what a great opportunity to stop. And when, especially when you're feeling those, like you're starting to replay in your mind what they did and how dare they and, blah, 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 and what you should have said. And just stop and pray some temporal blessing for them or some spiritual blessing for them. Prosper them in their vocation. Grant them, your, grant them an extra measure of your mercy and your peace today. And then just move on, right? Because otherwise, what do we do? <sighs> Look how amazing I am. Yeah, so say it quick and move on. <laughs> but this is a great part. This is a great part in the Lord's Prayer. Um, to, to, even, if, even if you end up looking in a mirror and saying, ooh, ooh, this accuses me, great, stop right there and pray it. Just pray exactly to God why it accuses you. Confess your sins. Ask for his help. And that's how Luther ends, with this horizontal dimension. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Okay, that's the fifth petition. Any thoughts you have there? Are we running a microphone today or no? No. Okay, why don't you go ahead and I'll, I'll try as best I can to kind of recap it for the online Oh, yeah. Right? And that always scared the, the heck out of me. Yeah. Because, it, you know, you, know you, you just described it, how you, you get worked up and you, you 
don't forgive people, and I recognize I don't forgive people all the time. And uh, so, I'm, you know, it, it scares me. But there is something, and I think Luther maybe touches on this a little bit here. Uh, if, right, if I don't forgive, then my father won't forgive me. But I know that God will forgive me because he's promised he's forgiven me. Right? So what that tells me is that he's promising also that somehow I'm going to forgive these people. He's going to give me the, the strength to do it at some point, or he's going to give mm. me the grace mm. to do it at some point. Because I know he's going to forgive me. He's promised that a million times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now I see this, but if I don't forgive, he won't forgive. Well, I know he's going to forgive. So it must be the case that I'm going to forgive, even though it doesn't seem like I'm capable. Mm -hmm. So I, I view it almost like a promise that God's going to give for, you know, that, that forgiving spirit to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. It's an interesting take. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, as Jesus mentions it in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Um, it, was it Luke's version where he has that? Yeah. And then in, um, in Matthew 18, though, he has something very similar. Remember the, remember the servant who is forgiven much, right, 10,000 talents or something, and he goes out and chokes his, you know, the servant who owes him a sizable amount, but a recoverable amount. And the, the end of that is, is exactly parallel to what Jesus there teaches, that if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. The, you know, what Jesus is getting at is it's not like, well, is lack of forgiveness then the unforgivable sin? No. What is lack of forgiveness? Well, think about that man who goes out and chokes the servant who owes him a sizable debt, but again, much smaller than he owed. What is the, and, and what is he, he doesn't get, it's not just that that guy gets angry at his fellow servant. It's not that he expresses desire for repayment. It's that he actually grabs him and chokes him and, and wants for that man the exact punishment that he just escaped. You're going to be thrown into prison until you pay every last cent. You know, so what, is that, what does that actually mean? This is, this is where I take a pastoral cue when people say, Are, I'm really, I'm really um, struggling with forgiveness. See, let's start here. Do you want that person to go to hell? Do you want that person to go to hell forever or not? Most, most of the time, I mean, I have gotten yes to that answer. That's fine. <laughs> we can work with that. <laughs> um, but most of the time, it's like, no. No, I'm really upset. I want them to acknowledge it. Maybe I want justice done. I want temporal punishment done. All of that's, frankly, good, right, and holy. It's great. No problem. Um, and then are you forgiven? Have you forgiven? Yeah. Yeah, you're forgiven. You don't want them to go to prison. That's, the, that's that parable, right? You, that, man, that man chokes his servant and wants him to go to prison. So he ends up going to prison. Like, that's equivalent to wanting someone to go to hell, and then you go to hell. And that's really what Jesus is getting at, is if you, if you can't forgive someone, like sort of the baseline level, it's not, you know, forgiveness here, we have to remember that like so many things theological, forgiveness isn't an emotional thing necessarily, right? It's, it, it's, it's an action. It's like love. You know, you may, not, you may not feel like loving your spouse, but you're called to a certain set of actions, and those actions are defined as love. And so too with forgiveness. You may not feel very forgiving. You may not feel right about it in your heart, but forgiveness is an action. You're choosing not to hold them accountable. Um, you're choosing not to pray damnation upon them. <laughs> 
So it's a pretty good baseline to start. And you can see there why Jesus warns so strictly against lack of forgiveness, wanting to someone to go to hell. Well, the very basis for you wanting to go to that, them to hell means you're subverting the blood of Christ, and that's the blood of Christ you're subverting for yourself. That person is bought by the blood of Christ just as you are, and so if you want them to go to hell, you ought to go to hell. That's, a, that's effectively the teaching. It's not like that lack of forgiveness or not, not high enough quality forgiveness. I mean, God isn't sitting there like the USDA saying, oh, that's, that's grade A forgiveness right there. I mean, it's, you know, we get these nonsensical ideas in our head that like, God's up there somehow like, grading the quality. And w- obviously, what's, I mean, this whole thing's a satanic game, of course. If he grades you by the quality, you're never going to have the right quality, are you? And as soon as you do, you're what? Self-righteous. You see, so you, like, you can't win for losing on this one. And that's, like, when you can't win for losing in these stupid spiritual head games, you can, like, that's when you smell the sulfur. And you're like, all right, all right. Run me through this once or twice more so I know it. Okay, I know it. Now I'm not going to play this game anymore. Um, so, so, yeah, um, you can see very clearly that Jesus isn't saying a lack of forgiveness is somehow some kind of unforgivable sin. It's just literally, if you want someone to go to hell... Um, Hard to say the Spirit of God, who desires all men to be saved, is residing within you. Repent. <laughs> right? Repent. Um, and when you do, you'll be forgiven. And now go and forgive. And forgiveness doesn't really have to do with your emotions or with the quality of forgiveness. Don't want that person to go to prison forever. That's good enough. That's good enough. Work on the rest. Pray for them and your heart will change. Okay, thank you. So, on to the sixth petition. Lead us... Oh, yes, sir. Yes. Then the question about uh, Mark versus Luke and death versus trespass is I seem to recall that maybe it is a different word in the Greek between the, the two. So one might be more translated sin or trespass. Mm, mm. I, I very well could be wrong. Hamartia and Luke and Ophelimata or whatever it is. And it's more death in the, in the Luke version and more sin in the Matthew. But again, I, I've gotten things swapped around like when the large <laughs> Easy to do, yeah. Um, I'll, maybe I can look into that. Maybe I can look into that and try to make comment. Either way, it comes to us as trespass, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, so the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? Well, the first thing, God tempts no one. So in English, and Luther kind of lamented that in German it sounds the same way, and in English it sounds kind of weird like this. It kind of sounds like, like God is, God is like leading us into temptation. We have to be like, stop that. No, <laughs> that's not what's happening. Okay, rather, rather, our hearts are constantly inclined toward temptation. And so th- that's our own sinful nature, as well as the world enticing us to sin and the devil enticing us to sin. This is temptation. So it's not that God is leading us into temptation. We have to tell him to stop. All these other things are leading us into temptation. We're asking that God would supernaturally pull us out. Okay? So we start very simply, God tempts no one. I think that's a direct quote from James. God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us 
or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Now, notice, notice, lead us not into temptation. The small catechism doesn't immediately take us to the Ten Commandments themselves and say, see, don't break each one of these Ten Commandments. Um, There's certainly overlap in what it says with the commandments, but look what it has in view. It has this kind of secondary temptation that I was mentioning earlier in view. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief. That's that's like apostasy. That's like lead us away from the faith. So, and this is, this is just an important kind of thing. It's not, there is no single individual sin, no matter how heinous, horrible, or twisted, or abominable it may be in and of itself, that tears you away from the Christian faith as such, because Christ has died for that. And the gospel is that that sin is forgiven. But what tears you away from it is, this, is the, the attitude about it, the false belief about it. Um, when we view when we view sins, Luther says, when we view sins as venial, that is of no consequence, they become mortal. They become consequential. So on the first on the first hand, we don't want to look at sin too lightly. That's the devil's one. Of, like the devil's first trick here is that you just ah everybody does it. Don't even have to ask for forgiveness, kind of thing. Like don't even. You're not that bad of a sinner. You probably haven't sinned since the 80s. Um, I mean, now that's an extreme, but some people do get there. Some people do get there, frankly. I wasn't, didn't we have a former president say something effectively like that? Didn't he say something to the effect of like, well, I haven't sinned in a long time. Very different definition of sin. Um, so you can see how the devil works to minimize sin. Um, but then the devil also can work to maximize sin. In fact, he can turn this into kind of a spiritual disease and condition called scrupulosity, where you overanalyze everything and every little, like, and then you weep and mourn and lament over it. This is where Luther says to a very overscrupulous Melanchthon, he says, he says, sin boldly. He says, look, you can't sweat this the way you're sweating it. The devil's got you on, on a hook over here. Okay, so, so you need, to, you need to realize, like, trust, you see your sin, trust in Christ's blood all the more. Okay. So he tries to see it, he tries to distort sin so that it's too big or too small. If it's too small, we become self-righteous. If it's too big, we despair. Now, when others sin against us, you know, there's, it's, it gets much more complex. It gets much more complex because of the different personalities and the different vocations involved. Maybe as a general rule, what Satan really wants to do is tempt those people who are in the offices that are nearest and dearest to you to sin against you. Um, if, a, uh, if your spouse sins against you, it hurts way, way, way worse than if some coworker sins against you. Um, if, if a pastor falls into great grievous public sin or scandal, that hurts people a lot worse than if just an average congregation member does. A, a scandal in the higher 
higher uh, spheres of government is much more devastating, um, much more scandalous than a sin of just a citizen, you know, a fall of just a citizen. So the, de- the devil's seeing this hierarchy that God's created and this ordering and economy that God's created. And the devil is constantly trying to tempt those who are in the offices that their job is to protect and care for us. Their job is to guard us. And if he can get those people to hurt and sin against us, then that wound becomes deep and personal. And if we don't recognize that as such and immediately go to, towards healing it, that thing festers and becomes super deep and super nasty. So that's, um, that's in view here too. We need to be aware, we need to be aware that sins that we commit and the sins that others commit against us is not like, it's not like the devil goes, okay guys, we got Rody to sin at 6 a.m., let's retire early. Off to the mountains of the desert to have some beers. That's not what Satan does. He's like, he's like, okay, we got Rody to sin early. Perfect. We've got a lot of waking hours to work him over on this one. Let's get to it. So that's why, like, don't sin. I write these things to you, John says in his epistle, that you may not sin. Okay, like that's goal number one. <laughs> like, don't even play the game. Okay, but if you do sin. You have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Okay, there's, there's like plan B. Okay, you've fallen into sin. Now what? Go to Jesus. And go, go fast and hard with your repentance and with his grace and with his mercy and get the thing right in your heart and your mind fast, fast, fast. Don't let it fester. Okay. Yes. When I think of despair, I think of Luther early on in his life. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, medieval Roman Catholicism was was and still remains, if you hold to strict Roman Catholicism, a very despairing religion, because the certainty of your salvation is actually anathema in Rome. If you believe that you are saved, Rome says that's a heresy. <laughs> you have to be humble enough to believe you're not saved. Isn't it the priest's entire job to convince you that you are saved in Christ Jesus? That's anathema. If he does that job, he's failed. He needs to convince you to be humble enough to doubt that you're saved. (laughs) What? Have things not gone upside down? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Even if you don't like Luther, at least like the Reformation, for crying out loud. Okay, so I think that suffices. It suffices to say that the devil wants to get us to sin and God wants to keep us from sinning because of what comes next. And that's the temptation. There are other forms of temptation, but we just don't have time to get into it. Obviously, our Lord faces many, many temptations in which he himself does not sin. And so we could, we could talk about those maybe at another time. Um, the seventh petition. Deliver us from evil. Probably in Greek grammar, just the most natural reading would be deliver us from the evil one. I don't know where or why that gets generalized to deliver us from evil. Um, just have that in your mind. It doesn't ultimately matter. But it, but it perhaps makes it less abstract. And it redirects, if it is true, it redirects the entire prayer in a sense against the devil which would make perfect sense. All right, what does this mean? 
We pray in this petition, in summary, that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. Isn't this shocking? Isn't this shocking? We, we usually think of ourselves as too spiritual, like, like God, doesn't, God doesn't care if my microwave that I just bought fries out. Well, when we're praying deliver us from evil, we're actually praying, yeah, that he would deliver us from every evil of possessions. There it is right there, possessions. Body and soul possessions and reputation. Sometimes we get too spiritual, and what I mean by spiritual is really just Gnostic. And we also kind of want to exonerate God. We kind of want to kind of want to kick God like way off there. Like he can't, he can't be involved in what happens in my kitchen and my appliances failing. Like that's, no, that's God a little too close. Out you go. Let's be spiritual. He doesn't care about my microwave. He's got bigger fish to fry. But what does this say? The catechism teaches us something different. It really does. It really does. That our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. So this is, the, this is the glorious ending of this prayer. Because deliver us from evil is we're praying that God would deliver us from all evil things. You say, well, God doesn't, you know, he must not, exa- that, that, that prayer might be coming through a little staticky. Right? Well, that frequently has to do with how we define evil and how he defines evil. Because many of the things that we define as evil and would like to avoid, he would define rather as good and necessary. Rhodey's microwave is going to go out and I'm not going to prevent that evil from happening because that's actually going to be worked for a greater good. Rhodey's going to grow patience and learn how to fix something. <laughs> so you can, see how, you can see how sometimes, sometimes our definition of evil and his definition of evil, our definition of good and his definition of good are very different. So we need to pray this, deliver us from evil with faith that God knows what's best for us. Now, finally, too, in this prayer, we're praying that whatever, whatever it is that he has us endure, whatever discipline, whatever crosses, whatever sufferings, and by the way, you never choose your own. In fact, the ones God chooses for you are very frequently the, the last ones you choose. And the very last ones that your nature is constituted for. And if you think about it from a design standpoint, that makes perfect sense. He's made your nature like this. He needs to somehow get that filled in over here. So the very weak spot is exactly where you're going to be attacked. You know, it makes perfect sense from a design standpoint. So we have to trust that that's what God's doing. And that he is in fact delivering us from evil. And that even though the devil and all his hordes are around us and they're, they're trying to torment us, that he will protect us. And he will keep us steadfast in the one true faith. And then here really is the, is the way that the devil is defeated. I mean, biblically, it's, it's by the word of testimony. It's by the blood of the Lamb. And here, it's, he's defeated when we die. When we die in faith, that's when we defeat the devil. That's what I mean by like, this definition of, his definition of good and evil and our definition of good and evil is quite at odds because when we think of death, we think of it as loss. Maybe the first thing God will like, do upon meeting us is clear his throat and say, <coughs> you, you thought you just lost? You just defeated the devil. You just died in faith. How else do you defeat the devil than dying in faith? You just crushed him under your, under your heel. So we pray that God would, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end. That's to die in faith. A blessed end does not mean what Americans think, dying in your sleep, getting hit by a semi without realizing what happened. 
A blessed end does not mean a quick and painless death. A blessed end means a faithful death. And graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. This is where all the, uh, all the folks mocking us for our uh, thoughts and prayers. I mean, the, the, like it's just to be pitied. Because the final and ultimate joke that isn't all that funny is on them. That, this is preci- that, that when tragedies occur, it's not as if God isn't listening. It's precisely that he is listening. And he rescues our children and our spouses and our loved ones from this place where Satan can torment them, take their faith away from them, wreak havoc upon them. And what does God do? God comes in and, and, you know, he sweeps them out of this valley of sorrow and brings them to himself where they are safe and where they have all their needs met and where they are blessed. And, and people are going to mock that and say, oh, well, your prayers didn't do very much. I mean, the, the, ultimately, it's just so pitiable because the, the laugh is on them. Of course they did. Of course they did. Every time I pray, deliver us from evil. For all I know, I'm praying that my children would be swept up to heaven this very day rather than fall into apostasy later. God knows all things. I trust him. I trust what he's doing. And those people he takes out of this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven, he is actually keeping them safer there than they are here with us. Right? So the very worst thing, death, is the very best thing. And this seventh petition reminds us of that. Deliver us from evil. The way that we are delivered from evil is precisely through death that is no longer death but life. No longer the end but a new birth. And no longer defeat to Satan but rather precisely conquering Satan and thus being delivered from his his grasp. Pastor Marie? Yes. One of the saddest things I heard was when our daughter died and our grandson said, do not tell us she's going to be in heaven. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why? Because the truth is that painful that, yeah, yeah, I know. They, they are in a better place. Yeah. Sometimes we have to be careful with how we comfort people because they're not ready to hear that, you know. But, but still, um, the, the fact is they are in a better place. Let's, let's wrap up very quickly. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. This is not, at, this is not in the original scriptures anywhere. Um, this is not uh, in Luther's small catechism. I think that it is, I think that this or something very much like it does come very, very early. And it's liturgical, and so it's written into the manuscripts very, very early, and that's how it comes to us. Um, the scriptures were obviously used liturgically. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you want to stop at, but deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one, you are more than welcome to. For the rest of us, we'll just go on and say the rest. What does this mean? This means that I should be certain that these petitions are pleasing to our Father in heaven. And of course they are. Christ gave them to us. And are heard by him. Again, they're heard by him, guaranteed, because Christ gave them to us. For he himself has commanded us to pray in this way, and has promised to hear us. And then he tells us what amen means. Amen. Amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. All right, next week to Holy Baptism. The Lord be with you.